Hey, thanks for listening to the Junior Ziggler podcast. If you're crazy enough to want more of his content, check out the link in the description of this podcast. That link can get you to his book, his socials, and another podcast. Thanks for hitting play. Here's Junior. Not counting Jesus, who would you say is the greatest character in Scripture? Like the goat. You know what I mean by goat? It's kind of like this new term. It's not really new. It's just, I'm just old, and so I, it's new to me. But goat meaning greatest of all times is what they consider. The goat of script. Seems like every sports channel has this debate. You know, greatest NBA player, which, by the way, is not LeBron. It is Michael freaking Jordan. Let's just settle that debate right here and right now. Um, but analysts will spend so much time and they make so much money debating, you know, who's the greatest quarterback and who's the greatest running back. And everybody gets all amped talking about who's the greatest person to ever hit a ball with a stick. And everybody, you know, gets all amped about it. But my question is, is who's the goat of scripture? What do you think? Now, many people would think, oh, junior, it's gotta be Abraham. In fact, if you're reading through the bridge reading program with us, we're following the life of Abraham right now. So many people think, oh, it's gotta be, it's gotta be Abraham. Like God made a great nation out of uh, Israel, out of Abraham. When God introduced himself to his people, he would say, I am the God of Abraham. Aside from that, even the, the biggest religion, Islam, claims to trace its roots back to Abraham. So he is hailed as the goat by most people. For me, though, I think, personally, I'm like, I think it's Moses. Freed an entire nation from a, the strongest superpower. How do you free a nation from the strongest superpower? With a staff, Led a nation through the desert to a land, gave them laws, spoke on behalf of God. Like to me, like in my book, I think, oh, it's got to be, it's got to be Moses. Other people would say, no, it's it's David. He slayed a giant with a sling, conquered Jerusalem, set up one of the most prosperous kingdoms and economies ever seen. He wrote more number one hits than anyone else. It's got to be David. Israel today still reminisces about the good old days of of King David. David could be a a great ghost. A little male heavy here, though. What about? What about Esther? Esther, she stopped the genocide of her people, the Jewish people. She saved an entire race. Or what about Mary, a mother of God, chosen by God? Catholics worship her as the queen of heaven. She's a special girl. Like, it's got, it's got to be Mary. Or other people say, no, Noah. Like, if it weren't for Noah, we wouldn't be here. He's the only righteous man found on earth, and through his obedience, the human race was spared. Like, there's a lot to pick from, a lot of options. And the funny thing is, and you might already know this, but the funny thing is that Jesus settles this debate. It's not even a debate for us because Jesus already tells us. And he says, it's none of these guys. It's John the Baptist. They're like, what? Why? Like, Jesus, we're talking about the same guy here. We're talking about like the guy who like eats grasshoppers and, you know, wears weird clothes and camps out in the wilderness. He's like that weird homeschool, the Whole Foods REI guy wearing Chacos. Like, that guy am. How is he the greatest? Is it because he's your cousin? Like, that seems a little like nepotism. I mean, sure, okay, John baptized Jesus. That's really cool. But like, come on, John over Abraham. John over Moses, how? Like, John never won a battle. He never wrote a song. He never led a nation. He never stopped a genocide. He never gave birth to God. He never gave birth to anybody. He never even had kids. As Dwight Schrute, if Dwight Schrute were here, he would say he never even owned any land. Like, from, from all we know, John died a lonely penniless virgin with no list of great accomplishments. So how is John the greatest? And the answer to that is so rich. You ever wonder if your life, if you're living a life that matters? 
I turned 36 on Friday and had a great day, you know, celebrating with my family, went out, had, had some fun. And that night, I didn't hit like a midlife crisis, don't worry. But like that night, you know, I was like getting ready for bed. And I was like, man, up until now, have I lived a life that I'll, that matters? Like if eternity is real, and I believe it is, like 100 years from now, will I be happy with the life that I left behind? I mean, this has been a thought that has kept me awake at night. You think about it. A thousand years into eternity, we'll hopefully hang out. We'll call it like a little maybe bridge reunion up there. You know, just have, have a, you know, reminisce about the, the good old days of the lives that we had down here. A thousand years from now, are you going to feel good about the week that you just lived this last week? A hundred thousand years into eternity. You can even want to reminisce about your life. It's a crazy thought, isn't it? And that thought can really set a fire in us. Like that thought can even send us into a midlife crisis. It's like, okay, I got to go harder. I got to make this count. I got to get that promotion. I got to write that book. I got to have babies. I got to climb this mountain. I got to do big things. But then I look at this hall of fame in scripture, all these like great people that did these really great big things. And Jesus says, oh, they're great, but they're not the greatest. It's this guy. So obviously Jesus has a different grading system than I do. What was it about John that made him a goat? That's, that's really the money question. See, far too many of us are on these paths or walking these paths that will just waste our life. Some people say it's like climbing a ladder, but you got it against the wrong building. You get to the top and it's like, what is this for? Maybe we need to rethink what we're doing, how we're doing it, why we're doing it. In this text, I really do believe this text could change your life. In fact, that's my prayer going into this weekend is that this text, this moment, right here, changes all of our lives. So we're gonna be in John chapter three. John chapter three, I encourage you to grab a Bible in the chairs, it's page 888 in the Bibles in the chairs. Otherwise, I know a lot of people use phones and tablets. We have the Bridge app. We have the Bible on the Bridge app as well as, as, well as notes. But this is what we do as a church. We are big on, on scripture and following scripture and obeying scripture and walking through scripture. And, and so what we do on the weekends is often we grab a book of the Bible, we just kind of walk right through it. Or we find a character and we follow their, their narrative and this, this, these four weeks, we're following the life of John. John prepared the way for Jesus, and we figure, who the better guy to follow to Easter? And so we're following John to Easter. John chapter 3 is where we'll be. Let me pray. God, I, I thank you for who you are. You are a great and mighty God. And we lift high your name. You are a creator at the macro level planetary orbits, you've mapped those. You spoke galaxies into existence. Creator at the macro level, but also the micro level, encoding DNA. And Father, you're not some deadbeat dad who just creates and walks away, but you're a, a dad who wants to be involved in our lives. It's why you, you gave us this word that we hold in our hands. And so may we remember the weight of these words. They're from you. God, during this time, you will convict as you always do through your word. I pray that we submit ourselves to you, that we, may we approach your word humbly, ready to receive your conviction. May we not just be hearers of your word, but may we do it. May you bless this time in Jesus' name, amen. Well, as we enter into John chapter three, an arid breeze gently drifts over the light brown rolling hills. There's not much to stop this slow wind other than the rare tree providing some coveted shade from the very harsh sun. See, very few people call this place home. 
not enough for even a small settlement. The hills have been peppered with small boulders. It's like they somehow rain down from heaven itself. And the sandy soil yields very little crop. Grass and greenery only ever grow here during the very short rainy season. The rolling barren hills with no flat, line, flat, flat land make walking just a workout. One mile feels like five. It's a less than hospitable area, but it boasts of its own beauty. Though unpopulated, these hills have seen something very curious and very fascinating these last six months. Crowds of people have been leaving their comfy settlements in the greener, higher elevations to come down to these rolling barren hills, all in search for a local celebrity wild man who calls these hills home. See, some simply make the trip just to say they saw him. That thin-framed man, long, matted hair, bushy beard, wearing a fur robe. They love how little he cares about fitting in. His bare feet have thick calluses from tracking across this this gravelly soil. He's wild, but he's brilliant. He leverages the terrain of this area and uses it as an amphitheater. Standing in a valley, his gravelly voice projects upward onto the hills to families sitting on rocks as if they were chairs. And after his sermon, he'll take the crowds down to the river for baptism. These crowds have only grown, becoming this relentless flood of people after people, all kinds of people, rich people and poor people, even Roman soldiers coming out to see him. She's been crowd after crowd after crowd. This wild man has built something incredible here in the barren wilderness. A revolution seems to be brewing out here, but it's about to be taken away from him. Verse 22, it says, after this, now, just a little trick when you read scripture, study scripture, and you run across something like this after this, it's always a good question to ask yourself, what is this? Because context always matters when you're reading through scripture. In fact, this is a lot of times when um, teachers, false teachers, a lot of times will take texts out of, completely out of context. It's always, we keep scripture in context, and this is kind of a reminder to do that. After this, after what? What just happened? Well, the context is, is that Jesus just had a conversation with a very religious guy named Nicodemus about salvation. This is the famous quote of Jesus. In fact, even if church isn't your thing, you might know this quote, John 3:16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. This is why Jesus came. He didn't come to just heal people and leave. He didn't come to just feed people like a food pantry and leave. Jesus came to connect you back to your creator. Everything you crave, every pursuit that you are on, what you are longing for is really a connection with your creator. And most spend their lives aimlessly trying to fill that void in their life. Fill it through stuff, it through sex, through relationships, through image, through security, through religion, through politics. We've all been there with this void in our life. Jesus came to fill that void and connect us back to our creator, which is everything you really want. So that's the conversation that happens. So after this takes place, after this very important conversation happens, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside. Now, if you write in your Bibles, which I'd encourage you to do, because next time you read through it, it kind of like sparks your memory, Right? If you write in your Bibles, write John with a question mark next to Judean countryside. John with a little question mark. Because this is what this is considered John's stomping grounds, the Judean countryside. This is John's area for now. And we're gonna see something play out here that a lot of Bible readers uh, miss. But it starts here with Judean countryside. So here's a, here's what's going on. Jesus is in the northwest shores of the Sea of Galilee, which is where Capernaum is at. He would have followed the shoreline of the Sea of Galilee down past Tiberias, down to the southern end, and then he would have walked down the Jordan River area toward Ainan. As he's walking, you know he's looking for the crowds. Specifically, he's looking for John the Baptist, who is leading the crowds, and he finds him. Verse 22, after this, Jesus and disciples went to the Judean countryside, traveling down 
the, the Jordan River. And he remained there with them and was baptizing. Now, hold on, Jesus. This area is kind of taken. This would be like if, if tomorrow we saw a, a wrecking crew in front of our church and they were tearing down a couple of the houses across the street. And we noticed that they're building a new church. It's called capital T, capital H, capital E, the better bridge right across the street. And they were cooler. They just had a cooler building. Their teaching pastor wore socks and looked like he owned a home. And, and they didn't have Pastor Brian. So they were just way cooler. And, and I say that because he's not here. And better. And people started leaving here to go across the street to that church. Those of us who would stay here, we'd be like, hey, what's, what's the deal? What are you doing? Like, there's already a church here. Uh, many places in Chicago need a church. Go there. Why, why are you taking our spot? Like, this is how John and his disciples would have had to feel. It's like, hey, Jesus, uh, Israel is a big place. There are big cities to go to. Why are you out here in the wilderness? This is our, this is our place. We were here first. This is our idea. This is our thing. This is our gig. These are our crowds. We built this. Why are you coming into our territory? Verse 23. John was also baptizing near uh, Ainan, near Salim. So we just showed that on a map because water was plentiful there and people were coming and being baptized. Verse 24. For John had not yet been put in prison. We'll get into that more next week. But here's a picture of, of where this all takes place. Uh, there were fresh springs in this part of the Jordan River that would create these pools, kind of some flooding around the Jordan River. It's a greener area. It's kind of like this little oasis in the Judean countryside. And because there were all these pools, it just made baptism a lot easier for larger crowds. So this is where this all takes place. And right here is where a debate breaks out, verse 25. This is now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew. Now in some translations, it'll be plural. In the original language, it kind of seems like Plural. It's not just like John's disciples versus a Jew, but the Jews over purification. Now, I'm not going to get fully into it, but essentially, this was like a big debate during this time, purification. It's kind of like, even today, people, Christians, like to fight battles to look smart often. This is why some people, like, they jump on blogs or they, you know, get involved in, like, the stupid online, you know, um, fights on, on Facebook and whatnot. Um, because oh, if I can argue, it just kind of makes me look smarter. Much of that is a distraction. And that's kind of what's happening here. See, context is, is that John, uh, John the Baptist grew up in a community that was very strict on purification. So much so that if you went to John's hometown and you were growing up with John, and let's say you needed to use the bathroom, you would need to leave the city, the outskirts of the city, to go do your business. How about that? If you had IBS, you're in trouble. You're doing that like weird waddle off town, you know? And so that's that community. But other Jews, most Jews held less strict view of, of purification. So, so there's this tension, right? Some are strict and some are not strict. John grew up strict, but, but here he's, he's being less strict. So as John is drawing crowds and baptizing, some critics show up and they're getting upset. Like, hey, John's dunking people underwater, but he's not doing the full purification process. He wasn't even trying to. He's just doing baptism. And so the critics, they start chirping, they start posting, they start blogging, they start critiquing. You know, John might have the crowds, but it's because he's cutting corners, you know, on the purification process. John might have the crowds, but it's because he's compromising. He was raised better than this. And it just goes to show, with success comes critics. You can do everything right, you're still going to get criticized for it. Any level of success, the criticism will come. You'll get a promotion at work, I guarantee it. Others in their own envy are going to talk about how you didn't deserve it. 
I was talking with my daughter about this last week. She's nine, and her, uh, her school is holding this, like, this speech contest. And she's like, Dad, you give speeches. Uh, can you help me? I was like, oh, sure, I'll help you. So, you know, we're kind of writing, writing it. And, and if she wins, she gets to give a speech in front of the whole school. And so we're writing it, and she says, Dad, what if I win? And I said, I said, well, baby, honestly, like, speech isn't about winning. It's an art. It's about communicating something that, that matters. And you win if you help people win in their lives. But, yeah, if you win the contest, you know who's not going to like you, babe? Who? Second place? Third place? Fourth place? And all their friends. The people who want to be on the stage but aren't, they're going to be your critics. And that's just life. That's okay. See, the drink of success has an aftertaste of criticism. It's just reality. And this is why a lot of people stay away from this because they can't handle the aftertaste. It's just reality. Some people don't do anything with their lives except for critique those who are doing something with their lives. And that's just what's happening here. Guys want to get attention for battling John. That's a lot of times the critic's heart. Hey, I'm spotlight's not on me, but if I battle the person with the spotlight, then I get some of the spotlight. And that's exactly what's going on here. But regardless of the pressure, John still keeps at it. He doesn't stop. He doesn't stop to fight. He doesn't tone things down. He doesn't try to like change to a piece. Hey, can we find some middle ground here? He just keeps on going what he, and doing what he knows to do. I keep on reading in verse 26. Another problem presents itself in verse 26. It says, and they, they meaning John's disciples, came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who is with you, he meaning Jesus, who is with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, look, he's baptizing now. And all are going to him. So first came the criticism, now comes the competition. A few months ago, John was this A-list celebrity. Crowds flooded, the city, flooded out of the cities to camp out all around the wilderness. It was like a first century Woodstock without the drugs and without all the sex. A few months ago, it was like fun. It was exciting. The crowds were exploding, donations, all of that. Like this is the stuff that people make movies about. But the moment that Jesus comes onto the scene, now John's out. John loses the spotlight. Jesus starts doing these baptism services and, and John's baptism service is empty. Everybody goes over to Jesus, which can you blame him? I mean, if you could be baptized by Jesus' crew or John's crew, who are you going to pick? We're going to pick Jesus' crew every time. But there's John standing in his open, empty field that used to be full, and he's staring at an empty field. It's a depressing sight. Maybe you know the feeling. You ever been part of like a business or an organization that was failing? And the ship was just kind of going down. And everybody felt like, that. Ah, we can't figure out why. There's like no, nothing you can do. Like people are just kind of on edge because they're stressed. There's just no wind in the sails, no excitement. And then you're tempted to be bothered by the other businesses or the other organizations that are doing well. And their growth reminds you of what you're missing out on. It's just kind of depressing and, and it weighs really heavy. Some people feel this sometimes with marriage. You know, they're kind of stuck in like this, this just wet blanket of a marriage and then they look at other couples who seem to be having fun who seem to be clicking better it's like ah, I just don't really like them as much because mine isn't as fun this is how John's disciples are feeling a little bit they just went from high energy this packed business to staring at an empty field and to sink the knife in deeper you can hear Jesus's field bustling with excitement packed with all these faces that used to come to you so first John's criticized then his crowds are taken away he hasn't even done anything wrong. But there's something beautiful here. And it gives us this glimpse as to why Jesus called John the greatest. Because when the critics start chirping and the spotlight is taken away, after the crowds leave, there stands a man with character. 
See, our character is most revealed when we are attacked or demoted. This is when your character is put to the test. When you're attacked or you feel like you're losing. Losing in relationships, losing in business. That's when your character comes out. Are you still going to do the right thing? Are you still going to have the right attitude? This is exactly where John finds himself. And what you don't find John doing is lashing out, hey, that's my crowd, I deserve this. You don't see him pouting, you don't see him writing any nasty emails, you don't see him unfriending all those people or venting or giving a cold shoulder to all those people. John's true colors show, and they are beautiful. It kinda, here's the way I think of it. So the last few years I've overseen our summer staff at camp. Not like directly, directly overseeing, but just kind of like overseeing the program. And camp is fun and funny. There's like lots of moving parts to camp. In one week, you will have 50 summer staff just show up. Many of them don't know where to go, where they're staying. They need to be trained. They need to be placed. And Becky, you know, Becky, she runs with all of that. And it's like, she's a superhuman. It's just kind of like fun to watch her because I can't do any of that. It's just like nuts and mayhem for her. But it's, it's, a, it's a fun mayhem. And what inevitably happens is a few weeks into the summer, these changes have to take place. It's a very pivotal time in, in the summer for camp. Because what you'll find is that there's some people who are doing jobs that yeah, they don't really fit there. It's not in line with their gifting. Um, things aren't really working out there. So we need to switch things up, you know, have some meetings and demote some people and promote other people. Trying to kind of figure out placement and who needs to be where, have everybody in the right seats on the right bus. And so needless to say, there's very hard conversations. Like, hey, I know you want to lead this. It's not working out. Can we find a better place that fits your, because you're God gifted you beautifully, but not here, let's move you over here. And when we have those conversations, some people will respond very poorly. Hey, you don't know me. You told me I got to do this. Who are you to say, oh, this is my job? And the true colors come out. And it's like, oh, okay. Well, now we know that's not, that's not the leadership we want, we want here, right? But the ones who respond well, oh, they might still be bummed, but they respond well, they have a good response. Like, hey, I get it. I'm just here to serve. Put me wherever. I'll, I'll plug in whatever. I just want to make an impact. You just tell me what to do. Those are the people who end up shining. That's our greatest staff. They have great character because they handle the demotion beautifully. Their true colors came out, and they were beautiful colors. And this is what we're seeing with John. His baby was just taken from him. What he worked so hard to get started, he was criticized for, and then people left him. And then look at his response, verse 27. This is so good. John answered, A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given to him from heaven. My goodness, what a profound statement in Scripture. Essentially what John is saying here is, this is not our territory, guys. That's God in flesh over there. He can do what he wants. We're going to lose and we're going to be okay with it because this is not our territory. This is extremely high emotional intelligence. Most people don't even come near to this high of emotional intelligence. And this is a lesson from the goat himself. You want to live a life of significance? Loosen your grip. Loosen your grip. I'm just going to preach to myself for a second, okay? But if the shoe fits, come along for the ride. Some of us are held back in life. Some of us are living miserable because we have such a tight grip on that which we shouldn't. In fact, churches are notorious for being filled with people who have a tight grip on everything. Hey, this is our church. Don't change a thing. This is our camp. Don't change a thing. This is our small group. Don't add. Don't change. These are our friends. This is like tight grip. And churches like that die. Because when you have a tight grip on today, you can't receive God's tomorrow. 
When you have a tight grip on today, you cannot receive God's tomorrow. And eventually what happens is you become irrelevant because you're just trying to hold on to yesterday. And then you're miserable, running around gripping things as if they're ours, trying to keep a grip on everything. And a life lived like that, humor me for a second, but a life lived like that is about as pathetic as a dog peeing on a hydrant to claim it. You ever do that? You ever take your dog for a walk and the dog just like pees on stuff? You're like, dude, just because you peed on it doesn't mean it's yours. I wonder how often God does that with us. It's like, hey, just because you, you started that business, it doesn't mean it's yours. Just because you formed that group, it doesn't mean that it's yours. And just because you were handed that leadership, it doesn't mean that it's yours. Just because you go to that church, it doesn't mean that it's yours. It's mine. Can you say, verse 27, at the end of the day, can you say, hey, it's all from God. So I've got to keep a loose grip on my titles and my leadership and whatever spotlight that I might have. It's all you. Many people can't say that. And so what happens is we not only live this miserable life, we actually end up fighting God. Now, we don't want to because we love God, but we end up fighting God because we tighten our grip as God slowly takes stuff away from us. And it's the slow, miserable death. You, you think about this. I mean, if John had gripped these crowds, he would have been standing in the way of God's work. So instead of John being hailed as this hero, this goat who set the stage for God, he would have gone down in Scripture as this pathetic man who tried to get in the way of God. And that can so easily be us. It is us sometimes. The way I think of it is my, my oldest daughter is upset with me right now. And I got her permission to, to share this, but she's not happy with me about something. It hasn't been for a month. And we have a great relationship. We still have fun. We went out this, this weekend going on dates and we have fun. But there's this one topic. If it comes up, it's not good. See, ever since COVID, we've been homeschooling our girls. And they were in school, and then when COVID hit, you know, the school shut down. We brought them in our home with teaching. We were like, this is kind of awesome. Like, we have freedom. We can kind of go where we want and do, do whatever we want, and we travel whenever we want. And uh, the kids, they go to a, a classroom every Thursday for, like, this, this co-op. But other than that, we just, like, really enjoy the freedom. However, we might, or considering, we might send our kids to the school that our church is opening a, a, a campus in. And it works out great. Like, we know the faculty. They're great faculty. It's just, like, this major blessing. My oldest is not happy about it. She hates change. She's going to be a headache for her pastor one day. I tell her that all the time. Because any change to her is just bad news. And so ever since Nicole and I sat the girls down and announced our plans to the girls, Madison has just had this attitude about it. And the thing of it is, is like, I know, I know her better than she knows herself when it comes to this. I know this is what's best for her. She's going to make so many more new friends, hands-on learning, amazing teachers. They have an art program and a music program. She just like loves that stuff. She is going to be in heaven, but she is mad. And she's been miserable for a month, because she has this tight grip on her current situation. Some of us have lived like that for decades. Just holding on, fighting, losing battles, getting in the way, and living miserable. Meanwhile, you have your dad saying, hey, I got something much better for you. You just have to trust me. I know this is uncomfortable. This might not be something you want to do. It might even be scary, but you have to trust me. I have something better for you, you need to loosen your grip, otherwise you won't be able to take it from me. See, if you tighten your grip on what you have now, you will miss out on what God has for you later. If you tighten your grip on what you have now and fight God, you will miss out on what he has for you later. And that happens all the time. And it's tragic to watch. Like, what kind of life is that? You're a life of holding on to lesser things while missing out on greater things because you have this tight grip. John's got so much to offer. He continues on, verse 28. 
says, you yourselves bear, and again, this is him talking to his disciples again. You yourselves bear witness that I said, I'm not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. Verse 29, the one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and, and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. Essentially what he says is, hey guys, I'm not the groom who needs the spotlight. I'm just the best man. I'm here to support my buddy, fix his tie, cheer him on. I don't need the spotlight. See, John knew his lane. Most people don't. Most people can't just accept their lane because it's a humbling thing. Hey, this is my lane. I'm just going to rock this lane. They have to grab other lanes because I need more spotlight. I need, I need more attention. And John says, I don't need all that. This is the lane I've been given, so I'm going to rock it. My lane was to clear the way, prepare the way, and then get out of the way, and I'm okay with that. Create a stage, gather a crowd, re-aim the spotlight, and give it to someone greater. And that is hard because he's tasted the spotlight, and now he's giving it away. And he gives us point number two, lessons from the goat. Reflect something greater than your desires. Reflect something greater than your desires. Here's what I mean by that. If you were to come over to my house after church, and that's not an invite because I won't be there. <laughs> if you were to come over to my house after church and you were to walk into the front door, you would look at a house that is a reflection of my wife and I. And it's not much to look at, but the style and the decoration is like a reflection of Nicole and I. The first thing that you might notice is like this barrel stave on the wall that says Ziegler, established 2010. That's when Nicole and I got married. So it's this reflection of, of our family. The old water jug below it was a gift from a friend that knows I just like industrial antiques. My couches are from a childhood friend. I grew up jumping around in these things. His family had these, and then they were going to get rid of it recently and throw them out. And I had a tight grip on them. I wanted yesterday, so I held on to it. Just a good childhood to remember. And then uh, when you walk into the kitchen, there's this, this vintage poster on the wall of where Nicole and I, we had our first date snowboarding at Devil's Head. In the hallway, there's a, an old map of Madison, Wisconsin, where we met and we dated and we got married. So this is just kind of what our house is. It's a reflection of, a, of, of us. And, and that's not a bad thing. It's what we do with our houses. It's why when you want to get to know someone, you go over to their house or you have them over because you're showing them what's a reflection of you. And that's not a bad thing. But here's the thing. A lot of our lives are simply just a reflection of us and us only. The way we spend our time, how we spend our money, how we spend uh, how, the friends that we make, how we lead is simply a reflection of our desires and nothing greater. You are a walking window. I'm a walking window. We're all walking windows. We can look at each other's week last week and it's like we're looking through a window of our desires. It's like, oh, you spent your money on that. You spent your time doing that. You pursued these relationships. I can tell your desires by looking through your window and you can do the same with me. Jesus called John the goat because John somehow broke outside the typical. John's life, his relationships, and his time showed someone far greater than his own wants. You and I can typically just be windows of our own desires. John, however, was a window into the kingdom of God. And this is why people were fascinated by him. Because they looked at him, and he's just different. His attitudes, his friends, his time was just about someone greater than himself. Seeing John was like looking through a window and seeing the kingdom of God, and it was captivating. It's like what John Calvin wrote. He's a guy who wore great hats and had a great beard. He wrote, we must make the invisible kingdom visible. I love that. This is when you're at your greatest when you're doing this, right here. It's not when you're making a bunch of money. It's not when you're keeping it. It's not when you're having those relationships. This is when you are at your greatest doing this. Our windows show not our wants, but a greater kingdom. 
So when people look at your family or your team or if you're a teacher or your classroom without knowing it, it's like, I'm looking at like this window of the kingdom of God. Like, look at them. Look at them teach. Look at them lead their business. Look at their leadership. They don't leverage their leadership to benefit them, but they bring the best out in others and they create this fun culture and they stick to their values and they don't cut corners. Like, man, I want that. Oh, now your leadership isn't this reflection of your desires. Now you're acting as a window displaying something greater, the kingdom of God. Or people look at your marriage and they think, man, they're they're not faking a great marriage like some sappy Facebook post. Like, look at them. They're selflessly serving each other. There's submission and there's leadership and they're bringing each other to Christ closer and closer. Like they're one. I want a marriage like that. Well, now your marriage isn't like this this marriage that that you're just looking to get something out of. Now your marriage is this window displaying the kingdom of God. Or if people look at your home, they look at your home life, they walk into your home and they're like, man, there's no yelling. They don't run from hard conversations. They don't sweep things under the rug. They don't just fake stuff. They enjoy each other. They have real conversations. They're fun. I want that. Now your home is this window displaying the kingdom of God. See, the main question that a follower of Jesus should ask themselves is, how do I do this? Because this is our marching order. How can my window display something far greater than my desires? How can my window make visible the invisible kingdom? This right here is the quest for followers. We wake up with this obsession. How do I do this today? How do I do this today in my marriage relationship? How do I do this today in my work? How do I do this today with my kids? How do I do this today with my friendships? It's this obsession that drives us to live these lives that matter a thousand years from now. See, one of your greatest sins, and it's it's my sin too, one of our greatest sins is that we just settle for less. We're just these walking windows displaying our wants. And the life lives like that dies with us. You were created for more. And John finishes up with one of the most beautiful statements ever made. He said, he must increase, meaning Jesus, but I must decrease. I mean, come on. This right here, this tells us why Jesus called John the goat. I mean, keep in mind, John was a high-capacity man. He could rough it out in the desert like Bear Grylls, a creative orator that would draw these massive crowds. He was a leader of leaders facilitating a movement. John created a wave of change, which only very few people throughout history can really do, create this crazy wave of change, especially out in the wilderness. A man of that caliber is very rare and also susceptible to knowing their own greatness. But make no mistake, this was John's heart. And it's our third lesson from the goat. You want your life to mean something a thousand years from now? Champion humility. Champion humility. John's, or Jesus' declaration of John being the greatest is owed to John's humility. John built something incredible and held it with a loose grip and he gave it away. He wasn't about himself. His window displayed something greater and he was willing to decrease. See, I really believe this. Humility echoes loud into eternity. What you make does not echo loud into eternity. Your title doesn't echo loud into eternity. What you keep doesn't echo loud into eternity. What you build doesn't echo loud into eternity. Your status doesn't echo loud into eternity. It's your humility that does. And the truth is, one day, we will all stand before God, before his throne. The scripture paints the scene of when we stand before God's throne. Scripture tells us what the throne room of God is like. There are 24 thrones around the great throne. There are seven torches of fire in front of the throne, this 
Scripture says this emerald haze that hangs in the air over the throne of God. And through that emerald haze come flashes of lightning. You can hear the thunder clapping, echoing off the crystal flooring. You and I will be there one day. And in that moment, as Job writes, our eyes shall see him. We will be awestruck and unable to stand. Falling to our knees, we will feel like nothing, tasting the reality of how small we actually are. We will feel terror. And I want to enjoy that moment. But the only way I'm going to enjoy it is if I live humbly before it. Is if my humility in that very moment isn't far different than the humility I live here on earth. In that moment standing before God, I so want to say, God, I lived with a loose grip on my days so that I could receive your tomorrows. I so want to say my life is a window displaying not my desires, but you. I so want to say that my 70 years here, I just decreased every day so that you would increase in my world. And I'm not there yet. I can't say that yet. I'm not ready. I got work to do. And it starts with humility. It starts with loosening my grip on my life, my status, my relationships, my sin, my dreams, so that my life can make visible the invisible kingdom of God. And that kind of life leads to an adventure, something worth reminiscing about when it's all said and done. Thanks again for listening. Again, for more content, just scroll down to the podcast description and follow the link. Before we call it, would you be kind enough to share this podcast? It goes a long way. Blessings on you today. See you next time.